Welcome to Bread and Poppies, a show about why drugs are good, capitalism is bad, and what to do about it. I'm Hilary Agro, an anthropologist who does drugs, I mean studies drugs, and our relationship to them as individuals, as a society, and as a species. I also do them. Disclaimer, alcohol and prescription medication are drugs. I don't do anything illegal. This is all a parody. Haha, <laughs> jokes. My guest on Bread and Poppies today is a friend, comrade, and journalist who's one of Canada's foremost experts on how the Canadian government screwed up our COVID response. You either love her because she's always right, or you hate her because she dunked on you on Twitter and you're still mad about it. Nora Laredo of the Sandy and Nora Talk Politics podcast. I had her on the show to talk about her new book, Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnose the COVID-19 Pandemic. We also had a conversation I'd been wanting to have for a while about how to balance a healthy fear of COVID to keep you safe uh, and rabble-rousing at the governments and private interests who have thrown us to the wolves for profit while not allowing that fear to completely take over your life. So basically, how to live with the current reality of COVID without necessarily accepting that this is just how it's always going to be. I'm not going to give much more of a preamble before the interview. My toddler has, uh, like, norovirus or something, so I got to go back to dealing with that when she wakes up from her nap. If you like the show and want to help me keep making more episodes, please become a patron at patreon.com slash hillaryagro. Link is in the show description. You'll get access to my patrons-only videos answering questions about things like psychedelic therapy and whatever else you'd like to hear me go off about. And soon, you'll also get access to the patrons-only Bread and Poppies bonus episode feed that I'll be setting up quite soon. That will have me riffing off the cuff on whatever subject I'm currently hyper-focused on analyzing that week. Picture me just brushing my teeth and suddenly yelling out, oh my god, hustle culture is a pyramid scheme, and toothpaste goes flying everywhere, and I'm running to my microphone to record a special episode just for my wonderful supporters. You can have all that for just two bucks a month, or more if you're feeling generous. Thank you, as always, for your support. Here's the interview with Nora. So, Nora, thank you for joining me. This finally worked out after a bunch of technical problems. Uh, Yeah, so how are things in um, Quebecois hell? Yeah, um, yeah. Not to imply that it's not a different and special kind of hell where I live, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, No, things are chaotic. Uh, School started late for us, so we actually haven't started school yet. That experiment starts tomorrow, and then we'll find out if schools will stay closed or open for the rest of January. I'm assuming we'll hear that in the next couple of, I don't know, hours or days. Um, But you know, other than the fact that it's like minus 40 outside, it's, it's pretty good. How are you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's very cold outside. Uh, we're currently locked down. I mean, this is being recorded, uh, in, uh, mid January. When is it? I don't even know what time it is now, but, uh, this will be, this will be coming out until February. So who knows what fresh hells we're going to be <laughs> witness to, uh, in the future when this is actually out. But, um, yeah, right now, It'll, uh, it- It'll still be cold in Quebec. That there's no question about that. <laughs> Guaranteed. Um, yeah. So, but mostly today we want to talk about uh, your book. Um, so, for those of you who aren't familiar with Nora, she's uh, a journalist, Canadian journalist, and uh, she uh, has a podcast called Sandy and Nora, one of the best podcasts in Canada. They talk about politics, and um, you know, she's she's a colleague and a comrade, and her work is fantastic. Um, 
she tends, I think she has the, the special designation of being the person who is uh, most hated among Canadian media for being correct instead of for being bad and wrong. <laughs> Uh, right that's that would be that's cool i should put that on a on a hat yeah. <laughs> um but yeah so nora's written a new book uh and yeah it's um it's it, it already came out right yeah it came out in december and uh, you know thanks to this global paper and ink shortage and all other things i'm not sure if you've seen the grocery store lately but we're i mean in quebec we're missing a lot of stuff um, the book's only arriving now. So it's, it's oh. a bit of a slow burn. Yeah. It depends on how you bought it. But like, if you bought it through any of the big box real estate retailers, I think it's still on order. Oh, geez. Well, then it's, uh, it's, this interview is going to be a little more timely than I yeah. intended it to be back when we were talking in, in December. Uh, yeah. So the book is called Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnose the COVID-19 Pandemic. And I think it's a, you know, I haven't read it yet. I'm really excited to read it, but um, it's it's important work because basically you're looking at uh, the, the failures of media and the politicians, which everybody knows, like, of generally speaking, how much failure happens at both of those levels, yeah. but specifically how that is tied to um, capitalism and racism within Canada as a colonial capitalist state. So, yeah, what made you want to write this book in the first place? Yes, I wouldn't say I wanted to. Um, <laughs> well, it, <laughs> you know, what compelled you to? <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so I had been collecting data every night from April 2020 about deaths in residential care in Canada. And so in Canada, there was no central location for, for information like this. And when I started to do this, there wasn't even like provincial central locations and a lot of health units weren't reporting this at all. And so it was really through like investigation here, investigation there. It was the only way that we were finding out this information. And so to do that, I had to basically read between 30 and 50 articles a night. Uh, it would take me several hours. And by the time the summer rolled around, you know, deaths had slowed, almost, almost totally stopped. And I kind of had some breathing space to really like, you know, sit back and think a little bit more about what I was seeing. And there's just these like constant themes that were being ignored by, by, by journalists and that were being pumped out by politicians. Um, some of those themes were uh, racism, uh, that, you know, the pandemic was, was nailing racialized communities in a way that it was not nailing white communities. And we knew this because of some of the data that was being collected. We knew this because of activists. We knew this because of some journalists, but it had never formed the principal orientation of the pandemic. It was never like, okay, so we know that, that COVID is ravishing this ravaging, uh, this, uh, community in this, in this city, let's pour resources into that community. Mm -hmm. That was not the way we had this conversation. It was still always like, oh my God, the, the youth are still partying. The bars are still open. People are getting COVID at grocery stores. All the stuff that was meant to instill a broad fear across everybody, regardless of who you were, while uh, hiding the fact that, um, you know, there was a, a tweet from Jennifer Yang from the Toronto Star back in March 2020 or April 2020. It was like really early in the pandemic that showed that that the curve was only planked for, for white and higher income individuals in the city of Toronto hmm. uh, when we were all trying to plank the curve. And so like that was very uh, telling, right? Like, you know, we live in a racist society. And so it's not very surprising that this would be how COVID would circulate. But no one was talking about it like this in the mainstream press. Of course, activists were and some journalists were, but it was not the dominant frame. 
So it was just, that's one example. And there's, there's a ton of other examples. And so in August, 2020, I've been doing this now for several months. And I was just like, I'm, I was waiting actually for my, my second book uh, had just been sent to the print printers. And so I'm like in this like total book hell of this pandemic. I don't know what I'm going to do with this book and it's done. And I've just been writing a book for two years. Uh, what do I do next? And I just rattled off the, um, the proposal and said, this would have to be done very quickly. Um, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And I sent it to Fernwood, uh, who is the publisher I was working with for my last book as well, the book before that. And great they publisher. said, yes, yes, which is a great publisher, Lockman publisher. They're really awesome. And they said, yes. Uh, they said, the only thing is, is that, you know, your timeline here says a book by uh, April, 2022, we'd like you to speed that up by six months. And so everything got really, really short. And so yeah. I had uh, from October until March to write 75% of it. And then from the end of June till August one to write the final 25%. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what, uh, you know, so I think the, the thing that always comes up around these kind of discussions, uh, which I think is important, but we have to be sort of like careful and critical about how we ask this question is who is to blame? Because it's, it's, it's not enough to, uh, you know, pinpoint particular actors and individuals that are to blame. Obviously, that's, you know, going to happen. I don't think anybody wants to let Doug Ford off the hook. But these things are, are beyond individuals and they, they work at the structural level. So how do you sort of like disentangle um, the different incentives that journalists, like, you know, individual journalists are working within a particular system. Mm -hmm. So like our where are these failures rooted? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The question of blame is something that I uh, spent a lot of time thinking about, because as you say, like we can blame individuals, but that only goes so far. And then of course there are some individuals that we need to blame. <laughs> um, and, and, and it was actually in the, in the chapter on media where I had to be very explicit about where blame lives within the press because it's uh, very obvious that the Canadian press is in a situation where, um, you know, they lost thousands of jobs, something like 3000 jobs over the course of the pandemic. People were expected to do way more with way less. Uh, they were expected to be instant experts. They were expected to know right away what was bullshit and what wasn't bullshit. And that was, that was a tall order. And you can't, you can't exactly blame individual journalists for, for systemic failures. However, there were a lot of individual failures as well. And I do go through some of those in the book. Um, and, and one of the kinds of failures that I focus on is the failure of columnists in this country to write about race and to write right. about the, the, the combination of COVID and race. And I look at um, Martin Red Cohen and Marcus G, who both write in Toronto. I look at Susan Delacourt, who writes out of Ottawa. Um, I look at, I mean, a bunch of Toronto Sun columnists, which are not going to surprise anyone. I look at Lisa Corbella out at the Calgary Herald. And it's just like so amazing how these people whose job is to do the analysis, right? Like like news reporting is one thing. And the the, the failures of news reporting was often that it was just too um, like tied to the stats, tied to the daily update, updates. There was just nothing where people stepped back and gave bigger pictures. But I mean, that's also just how daily news works in this country. But the columnists should have been the location where we had the analysis and far too often the columnists in cities that are not majority white uh, are writing race out of the pandemic and doing it consistently and doing it in such a way that um, that then creates a situation where you're like, well, what's even real? Like, you know, 
you you can read all of the columns of the provincial affairs columnist at the Toronto Star and race comes up only as it relates to taking down statues. Like it's just complete. It's a complete joke. <laughs> so, you know, individual blame there a little bit. Um, and, and there's a couple of other examples like that. Um, but but you're right. This is a systemic issue. And, and individual blame was how the how the pandemic has been sold to us. Right. That mm-hmm. it's like our problem, our fault that we're not washing our hands enough as yeah. if like COVID even stays on our hands, which we know it does not. Right. Um, and, and so that's where the systemic analyses of like our preparedness, how prepared were we, how prepared were we after dealing with SARS? Oh, not at all. Uh, what did we know in the early days? So one example I write about is by February, by the end of February, 2020, there was a report from the WHO in China that, that basically told the world what, to watch out for in terms of the danger spots based on the experience in Wuhan. And though there was a list, like those kind of bullet points of like locations where you need to be worried and, and unsurprisingly prisons, long-term care facilities, congregate living situations was on the list, right? Because that's, you know, people are sleeping together. Obviously the, the virus is going to, you know, probably propagate when everyone's asleep. It's not a fucking, it's not like yeah. Super Mario where you're like, look at the sun and he stops moving. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, uh, and so this is, this is put out by the, um, the, uh, the WHO in China and, you know, it's like, okay, wow. So we had this report journals were paying attention at this point, right? It was like the end of February, people were freaked out. And I, and I looked around, I was like, Hey, what was being said in the press in February, 2020 at the end and the beginning of March, 2020 related to long-term care. And so I'm doing all these media searches to see, and there was almost nothing. So there was a story from like mid-February of a woman being brought back to her long-term care facility by paramedics from a hospital where, where staff locked her outside. And then she died 10 days later. It's like, okay, so that was in, in <laughs> Ottawa. The Ottawa citizen covered that. That was on their minds. Is, Ooh, these places are perhaps not ready to deal with a massive pandemic. Um, I found one editorial written by a doctor saying that the pinch point within the healthcare system is long-term care because the second someone is able to be discharged from hospital, but not able to take care of themselves. They, they are sent to long-term care. And oftentimes hospitals get, you know, uh, full because there's not enough spaces within long-term care. So unless we alleviate the pinch point at long-term care, we're going to have this massive problem in hospitals. What happened? Oh, actually the jurisdictions did the opposite. They sent people from, from uh, long-term or they, they sent people from hospital to long-term care where they were not able to actually care for them. And that was what happened with the mass deaths in, in, in Quebec, or they refused to send them to hospital when they needed it. And, and that's where we saw, you know, hundreds of people dying sometimes in the same facility. And so who do you blame on that? Well, you blame public health, you blame politicians, you blame like, you know, management within these facilities, managers who said, you know, you can't wear your mask because that's scaring the residents in April, 2020, which I know happened in, Jesus in a facility. Yeah. Happened in a facility in Waterloo. And, um, and, but, but then the question is, you know, so blame is easy. And then it's like, well, what are the consequences? And what we see is that there are literally, not only are there no consequences, but it is likely the case that there will be very few political uh, casualties from this experience that we will see Doug Ford reelected. We'll see Francois Legault reelected. Justin Trudeau was reelected in the middle of this. The fucking guy out in fucking BC was reelected. Uh, John Horgan uh, because of this. Jason Kenney might be the actual one who who actually doesn't get reelected, and that's only because he really fucked up. Right? Yeah, that would personally make me very happy. But yeah, it's uh, it's not nearly enough. No. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's interesting to talk about, yeah, like blame and and consequences are more 
specifically lack thereof. But, um, you know, what, what I try to do specifically with this podcast as well is, is making really clear, which obviously, uh, you, you do in your book, but if we can try to do that here a little bit, um, the connections between the capitalist profit incentive and how that, fucks everything up because yeah. in the end, like we have these individual individual actors and we have these systemic issues and obviously race is really huge. And I want to, I want to talk about that more as well. Um, but the, the incentives that drive people to make these short-sighted decisions and how that is entangled with like, you know, the defunding of, of public health and mm. the, you know, I mean, the, the entire way that, that the capitalist profit, profit incentive um, it poisons our entire public system. Yeah. And, and there's two ways to look at it. There's like the future, right? So what has this done to then justify even more harsh reforms to the welfare state, whatever exists of it still, uh, or privatization of healthcare and that kind of thing. Um, that's, I don't talk about that in the book almost at all because the future for me is kind of like <laughs> a fucking problem. Like it is just so, you know, we don't, we don't even know if the planet is going to exist in four years. So I'm going to leave that to someone else who wants to really dream about that. And Nora, we have that. kids, we have to have <laughs> optimism. Uh, oh, I do. They're ready for it. My kids are like, they've been tra training for battle. So it's going to oh be super God. fun. Um, actually they're playing right now in dirt, which is like a potted plant that I didn't get rid of. And I'm like, Oh, that's a terrible idea, but whatever, fine. <laughs> whatever um, can keep you, whatever can give you a few minutes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, no, but, but I say that in a in kind of a joking way to say like, that's not the approach that I've taken is like in the future. Um, and it isn't to say, I don't think it's important. I just, I just didn't do it. That's just not I, I decided to really, you only have so many present. pages. Yeah. I only had so many pages. Yeah. Um, and so someone else should do that actually. Like I would really love to read that. Um, but the present, the decisions that were made in the present or now in the past, uh, were all oriented to protecting the status quo. And so the status quo of course, being capitalism, racism, white supremacy, and colonialism in this country. And so what did that look like? That looked like uh, keeping things open and operating as normal at all costs. Now, it might be hard to have seen that because average people did not see much normalcy, right? We were our, our, like, even if we didn't get the, uh, the opportunity to stay home and work, uh, our, our workplaces were like changed in certain ways and there was lots of stress. And, and so things were not normal. But the way that journalists uh, took the words of politicians and just ran with them as if it was like total truth meant that for uh, almost the entire pandemic, other than like some moments where there was like some clarity breaking through, um, the con construction of the entire economy was uh, boiled down into the points of contact that I personally have in my neighborhood or my community being the bar, the local store or the local corner store, the family I know that owns this place, me going to the grocery store, me going to Canadian Tire, that kind of thing. It was not very complex. Costco, um, you know, loomed large as like, well, why is Costco open or Costco needs to remain open, right? So we were, we were talking about like consumer, very, very basic consumer um, choices. Grocery stores obviously were a huge part of that as well. But it hid the reality that that everything about how grocery stores and corner stores and then schools um, and other parts of society were treated during this pandemic was to hide or to obscure where the giant profit makers really were, with the exception of grocery, which of course they made a fucking ton of money, but they were going to make money because like it's a pandemic. What the fuck? We're still going to have to eat. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
uh, so we're all locked down. We're all told that, you know, you can't, you can't see your grandparents or you can't see your parents. You can't see your loved ones for all this fucking time. You're, you know, hiding in your house because you're freaked out or going to work every single day, really, really freaked out all to serve the fact that in the background is manufacturing is mining is energy, um, production. And, you know, then you look at the statistics to see who was most at risk of severe outcome, meaning death. And the most at risk were people who were in manufacturing in these large congregate workplace settings. Of course, we heard a lot about Amazon, but even the shipping facilities were not as dangerous as manufacturing. Mm. Um, and, um, and so there's this no, like we just had no adult conversation about what actually does the economy need to do to get us through this pandemic. And the 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 you know prevailing logic was that well we need to protect the economy. The economy needs to grow uh, rather than actually no we need to stop certain parts of this economy. Whether that means fully shutting down things like construction, which only happened in Quebec of all the provinces and only happened during the first wave. Otherwise, construction did not stop. Um, or or maybe we need to fully close this manufacturing plant for a period of time. Or maybe we need to force uh, you know plants to operate at fifty percent. Or maybe we need to um, have rotating days. Or maybe we need to force Amazon to rent more facilities to give workers more space. Like there were so many options that they could have done. Mm -hmm. And rather than taking any of them, most jurisdictions just hid the outbreaks that were happening there. Some jurisdictions like Alberta named them all, but then they're just like, so what? You know, oh, you know, more workers have died out in, in Formac. So what? Right. Um, and all of this was done in the pursuit of profit. All of this was done to make sure that that in this in this potentially radicalizing moment or potentially radical moment that no one felt that they had the ability to actually take radical change because mm -hmm. at the end of the day things were just kept a little bit different uh making us feel like next week this will all be gone next month this will all be gone once the vaccine's yeah. here it'll all be gone once the second dose is here it'll all be gone once the boosters are here it'll all be gone Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> it won't be, but, I mean, but there's good news too. And we can maybe talk about it at the end, but, but that's um, the bad news. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I always kind of struggle with, uh, you know, I, I want to, uh, it's important to give people enough, you know, hope and optimism is not, those are complicated concepts, but um, you don't want to give people so much doom that uh, people become paralyzed and unable to like, totally. you know, do anything uh, and, and help fight to actually change these things. Um, because humans created these systems and humans can, uh, abolish them. But, um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering then, uh, in, in terms of the, the, the government, the governmental structures, they seem, you know, from like somebody who's not done the research that you have from the outside perspective, um, they basically just seem either, uh, like too controlled by, like captured by, uh, and fearful of, um, uh, you know, corporations and, and, and just business, uh, in, in Canada to actually like flex the power of the state. And, you know, I'm not, I'm undecided on the sort of like state versus like anarchist question. I'm probably gonna have somebody else on to, to talk about that, like to convince me to be one or the other, mm -hmm. but it seems that as, as we have it in terms of, you know, socialists and like people who believe in, in, um, uh, not the profit incentive. We have the state right now and yep. it can do good things. Like the, you know, socialized medicine is a pretty good thing. Uh, 
But the Canadian state is is an inherently capitalist state, and it generally all of our governments at every level are way too afraid of business or just like captured by and uh, in cahoots with business to actually force businesses to do anything except for remain open or closed, uh, change hours, like these little tiny, mm-hmm. tiny tweaks, but actually doing things like, you know, no, Amazon, you now have to uh yeah build an entire new facility you ha- you have to put these filters in you have to you know give your workers paid leave you have to do these things and just force them to actually implement let alone just like taxing them because another conversation yeah. that that always comes up around uh healthcare and, and this kind of thing is that like oh the healthcare system is strained it's you know we don't have the resources and then we talk about like triage and and how we should just like let anti-vaxxers die because we shouldn't pay for them to make their poor choices which mm-hmm. uh, is an inherently fascist argument and you can use that against fat people against people of color against like drug users against anybody who is seen to to choose their death um or or their death is based on their personal choices um, but all of these conversations that happen around, uh, you know, the, the limitations of our system, we there's rarely outside of like particular leftist spaces, the conversations about, no, the money's there. We could just fund mm. the healthcare system if we just taxed these corporations more. Yeah. Um, so what's what's going on there? I, yeah, there's there was so many minor things that could have been done immediately that they did not do that just demonstrates like the complete like unwillingness to actually help. Right. So one of the examples from the early days of the pandemic was Quebec hired 10,000 new orderlies. They gave them free education. They went to school for a couple of weeks and they were able to be in the field within months that they applied to become an orderly. Um, Not everybody stayed in the jobs, but it was a way to try and get like the fastest trained people into the healthcare system, right? It'd be hard to do that with nurses. It'd be harder to do that with doctors, but orderlies, you could train them fast enough and get them into the system. And that was really critical. That didn't happen anywhere else. Um, you know, in the last day or two, I saw that there's like one government, I don't remember if it's Ontario or whatever is talking about how, oh, foreign trained credentials, we're going to finally recognize them. Right. That could have been done fucking years ago. That could have been done March, 2020. That could have been done March, 2021. Right. Like there's absolutely no reason for, for them to have waited so long. And those are really minor on the massive, on the massive changes. I mean, (laughs) In in March 2020, the federal government created the largest new social program in a generation. And it also turned out to be the largest cash transfer from the public purse to the private pocket uh, in the history of Canada, right? We're talking tens of billions of dollars through the wage subsidy given directly to corporations to keep people on the, on like payroll uh, so that the federal government didn't actually have to do that work themselves. They outsourced it to the private sector. There were no checks and balances pretty much. I mean, they say that there's checks and balances, but I I applied for that, that um, for my own uh, organization for a year. We were never asked for anything to prove that what I was saying was true. Um, and you can imagine like, yeah, you know, this is just a tiny not for profit. We were doing two half salaries, right? So you can imagine what this looks like for fucking Canadian tire or, you know, Rogers that made, which is really funny because of course, if you're applying for EI or anything like that, like the means testing is through the roof, but yeah. yeah. And not just EI, but, but the CERB, right? Yeah. Like, so, so at the same time as the, as a wage subsidy, I had the CERB, which was, which was this like pandemic EI. Right. And people were like, people were sent into like a, an anxiety tailspin being like, you have to pay this back. Oh, we made a mistake, but you have to pay this back. We saw like 
like communities that were totally hit by suicide waves that they'd never seen before among like a similar profile of individual um, who were like in, in this situation where it was like, oh, actually you've got to give us $2,000. It's like, I qualified for that because I didn't have $2,000. You think I'm just going to be able to pull $2,000 out of my ass? Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, and for our American uh, listeners, the CERB, CERB, it was the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. This was a thing that was being uh, touted a lot in the U.S. as like, look, Canadians, like Canada is paying people to, to stay home, you know, or, or mm-hmm. like anybody who lost their job because the pandemic was paid. Um, and that was true to a certain extent, but there were massive problems with it and massive, uh, you know, gaps. Yeah. Well, and the, fell and through. like well, the, the amazing thing about it was how fast it came out and how fast it was to get the money. And that was amazing. Like it, mm-hmm. it really, it, it showed the power of the state. Cause I agree with you. Like I'm, I also am not fully my made up state is good. State is bad. Um, I do, I do believe like, you know, th- the state is the massive organization of like a society and economy. So like that is helpful. <laughs> and I don't actually know how we do that without something as big as a state. Um, and yes, there was obviously things that, that, that were done in the beginning that just because it was the liberals at the head of them just made sure that it was total shit within a couple of months, right? Like the liberals just can't help themselves. Uh, the idea that they gave literally no money to the poorest people in this country, like that's, that's <laughs> Sorry, the that's main just, story, right? That just so defines liberalism. They, they can't, can't, they can't, they're like, help themselves. It's like, what am I not fucking someone over? I, I got to fuck someone. Who am I going to fuck over? Uh, I'm going to fuck over, uh, uh, you know, the poor people, like there has the to be a people. loser there somewhere. Has to be a loser. Yeah. You, you know, you want free money. I mean that I know. Okay. Okay. I know that guy's getting free money because of the wage subsidy and his, his boss has just not fired him, but they can't open because they're a travel agency. So he's at home on his couch, eating cheesies with his roommate, but his roommate, that guy's a fucking bum. And he <laughs> also is not doing any work, but he didn't get any money last year uh, other than $4,000. Then he did some under the table work. So he's getting nothing. And so he's just sitting on his ass, eating cheesies, watching movies beside his roommate who's sitting on his ass, eating cheesies, watching movies, getting paid $800 every two weeks because of the wage subsidy. It's like, it yeah. was bonkers the way yeah. that they conceptualized this. And, and it really and- reveals this sort of like neoliberal bootstrap mentality that, totally. that underpins conservatism, but that people really underestimate how much it un- underpins like neoliberalism too. And liberalism, like, like capital L liberals in Canada, they NDP. are capitalists. Yeah. Like you're capitalist too. Like they, they, they have this mindset, they have a hierarchical mindset and, and, um, a mindset that like the profit motive is good because people, if they don't have any sort of profit motive, if you're not like risking, if you, if you don't have homelessness dangling over us at all times, then nothing will get done. And we'll all just be lazy bums sitting on the couch at home, which is just like demonstrably untrue based on yeah. like every shred of actual evidence we have. But yeah, it's enraging. It's enraging. And then in all of this, the conversation around supports for people with disabilities was, was zero. I mean, not at all. And, you know, you had activists uh, and disabled writers who were doing just wonderful scholarship and activism and and pointing things out and making these arguments and not making it into the mainstream uh, discussion at all. I mean, there were flashpoints. There were some moments where, oh, the $600 grant that came from the federal government, um, get all of a sudden there's a bit of news around that. Um, but by and large, there was there was not much. And, and, and so in, in disabled Canadians, you have two kind of things happening. You have, uh, these are folks who have the expertise in infection control and in, in social distancing and in, um, you know, being safe and harm reduction, um, that could actually be put, you know, onto the national, onto national radio saying, oh, well, uh, here's my expertise from a life of living under similar circumstances because of X, Y, and Z. 
Yes, that absolutely. Happen. I mean, this is a big thing that ties into to drug policy as well. Like the, we have um, people who are, are contacts within communities of people who use drugs on the street and like they could have been like they, they are all experts at like giving injections. They could have been giving vaccines like they could have yeah. been utilized in all sorts of different ways. And also like just in terms of like trust uh, and like distrust in public health you need to get those community partners because those people have had their trust eroded by public health. And so of course, a lot of them are not going to trust a system that has been so terrible to them, but no, yeah, no, exactly. And then the other, on the other side, it's also like disabled people who uh, stood to lose the most or who had the most risk, uh, who were the most shut in because of social um, uh, public health policies who were living within these facilities and had absolutely no ability to say, whoa, whoa, you're not going to shut my parents out because they're like a 14 year old kid. We know that, you know, there are children who didn't get to see their parents for months and months because of policies that shut their parents out. And only once those parents went to uh, human rights uh, commissions, were they able to get back in to see their children? Um, and so like just this double injustice uh, of both ignoring the expertise of disabled people and ignoring the fact that they were most un are most at risk um, in a whole bunch of different ways. And the, the most also impacted by like closures of programming, the most impacted by um, changing PSW uh, working schedules if they can't go from person to person, like just so impacted. Um, and it's nowhere. It's nowhere. And so, you know, um, I'm just trying to think of the original question. Um, so ways oh, yeah, that the original, the ways that the government could have intervened. I mean, these are really basic, like the, the wage subsidy or the, sorry, the, um, the, the CERB, the individual benefit should have been extended to everybody. There should not have been an income cutoff on the bottom. There probably should have been a higher income cutoff at the top too, because it, it topped out at $2,000. It, it probably should have gone to $3,000, but anyway, so that would have been very, very easy for the federal government to do. And they did nothing. Um, they, they easily could have all governments, uh, easily could have doubled um, social assistance rates, knowing that this would have a very acute impact on people who receive social assistance. Not only did that not happen, but most jurisdictions in this fucking shitty country actually clawed back social assistance from people who applied for and received CERB. And when you listen to people like Paul Merriman, who's the minister of being a fucking asshole in Saskatchewan, he's like, talking as if it'd be impossible for someone to be on social assistance and also have a job. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking? What the, the, like, the whole system is set up to force people to do that. Like, of course, of course. Like, but also like, uh, like, and actually it wasn't even just that it was also anybody receiving a uh, disability supplement. So not income supplements, but you know, it's supplements for like paying for extra care or for devices or whatever. And this guy's talking like disabled people can't have jobs. And it's like, the money's not because people don't work. The money is literally because you have to pay for somebody's help. Like what the fuck? Like yeah. get your head out of your ass. Anyway, this is, this is like completely common and it's happening all the time, all throughout this, uh, the last two years. And um, by and large, it, it leaks itself into the press uh, from time to time. I only know that of course, because it was reported in Saskatchewan and um, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, they're doing their best. Oh my God. Nora, you have no idea. It's so hard. We're doing our best. Right. <laughs> And, uh, and it's like, you're not, you're fucking not. And, and, and then, then you look at the individual journals, like, Oh my God, we're doing our best. And it's like, I don't know, like you could have named who owns this facility. That would have been not too difficult to do. You're the journalist. You can Google that for one, one second. And so oh, what, yeah, we're doing our best. So, and this is what I'm actually curious about, because I know that you, you know how this stuff functions. Uh, so what, what stops 
you know, if we, we talk about, for example, um, the fact that like race is like rarely mentioned in major Canadian newspapers and like the obvious answer is because most of the journalists are white and these are white supremacist institutions like from the get go. But like what, so, what is it that stops these individual journalists from from doing due diligence on these things? Like, is it just kind of like, I just want to get this done and get it out and or just like, what, how does this stuff function? Yeah, it's a good question. I'll give you two examples of um, me saying, I don't know. Um, I mean, I know how it functions, but I don't fucking get this. Okay, so Ottawa, the the region of Ottawa, every journalist outlet in Ottawa, so CTV, uh, Global, CBC, Ottawa Citizen, consistently never named where people were dying if they died in residential care or a group home. Never name them. And you're like, that's super weird because I can go do Ottawa Public Health. It's right there. It's the list is right the fuck there. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't any journalist from any of the outlets in Ottawa name them scoot down the 401 and find yourself in like Brantford and global. So global who would not do this in Ottawa is all of a sudden naming every single bit of information that they have. And it includes who is dying where. And so this, this doesn't, this is no longer about ownerships constrictions. Like it's not as if like the owners of these news companies are like, you know, downplay the owners of the of the residential care facilities. Down, don't talk about their profits. I mean, there's going to be some of that for sure, but mm-hmm. but by and large, it's like this weird cultural thing. So so that's one example where it doesn't make any sense. I mean, Global out in British Columbia was the only organization doing that kind of reporting. It's like what the hell? Whereas the 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 Edmonton Journal and the Calgary Herald, both owned by the same company and very similar newspapers. Edmonton Journal always listed all the information of where people got COVID and died from an outbreak, whereas the Calgary Herald only named it if it was in Calgary. What's the difference? Why the fuck would Edmonton do that and Calgary would do this? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, Then you get this weird situation with the second wave or the third wave or the fourth wave, depending on where you live in Canada, uh, where um, because public health units and not all, but some, because some public health units, I mean, not all, not some didn't report anything. The ones that did report information about where people were dying often would report them in clusters of outbreaks. So then you get this situation where, um, again, in Southern Ontario, uh, reporting around Halton region. Okay. They'll say, Oh, uh, five people just died at this one facility. And me, I'm tracking this. I'm like, that's not true. This is like the 27th death here. What the hell is this? Oh, it's just this current outbreak. So you have to go back and count. That's a pain in the ass for average people. But for a fucking journalist that's tracking it and that only has to cover like one region, it's not that difficult. I'm covering all of Canada and I knew that from a fucking flash, right? So, you know, there, there's there's certainly time constraints and there's certainly cultural issues within every newsroom where you do things this way or you don't do things that way. But but frankly, I, I don't know. I don't know what it was that would make a journalist say, I'm not going to add an extra sentence to this story um, that explains uh, who owns this facility. And the place where this became like, for me, the most ridiculous was on accounting who had died uh, in healthcare work uh, settings as workers. Mm -hmm. And so you'd have this situation where Ontario's like on on Ontario news, CP 24, this is the 37th healthcare worker to die or something. It's 26, whatever, who cares? And it's like, the fuck are you talking about? We're already above 60 in Canada. Oh, you mean in Ontario, which you didn't say. Okay. So then you go to first healthcare worker to die in Saskatchewan, which you don't say. So there's just like, or the fifth nurse to die. Where, what are you talking about? So there's just complete 
um, like these these pockets of information that do, that do absolutely nothing to weave together a national analysis of what the fuck is going on in this country. And so there was this period of a week where people were dying kind of rapidly. Uh, workers were dying kind of rapidly. And so you had a worker in Windsor, a worker in uh, in um, nor in the Battlefords in Saskatchewan, two workers, three workers in Alberta, and and, and a worker in uh, in Mississauga, and and none of them made reference to each other. None of them made reference to each other. So as an average reader, I mean, do you know that what you're reading is like extremely local or very much just your province? Or do you just not think about, well, you know, it's like this in Ontario. It must be like this everywhere else. Or, oh, the 26th worker to die. No, the, the, it's actually 50th. Huh. Okay. Does that make a difference? Yeah. And then that doesn't even line up with you know, the incredible overemphasis on like certain particular kinds of workers because we know that like it wasn't like bums like you and I who write for a living and just like podcast and like can sit at home. It was the people who actually like keep us fed and like keep society functioning that were actually at risk. Um, yep. And and just like I, I I appreciate that you actually focus on them, focus on the the, the racialization aspect because it was primarily um, people of color who are workers, but also just like calling them workers, um, you know, because mm -hmm. it was, you know, it's, it's not me going to the grocery store once a week that's at risk. It's the people who work at the grocery store. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And, 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 and also like you mentioned the, um, the more sort of like invisibilized parts of our society, because even grocery stores get a lot of attention, but it's like the, yeah, like the people who are working at like massive, you know, bread manufacturing facilities and yeah. Um, so yeah. So is, what, what were the, the main, I guess, um, I, I know you're, you know, you're not thinking about, uh, the, the future issues too much, but like your, your main sort of like conclusions as to, as to what the, what the failures were, were rooted in and what, um, uh, what, what was missing sort of like on, on, on a large scale, because we, there's a lot of sort of like little, yeah, no worries. There's a lot of, uh, details that, that you look at in your work and like, you've been doing this, um, for a long time. And, um, yeah, to actually like, like you say, like weaving together these, these different narratives, um, is something that a lot of journalists don't do, but you do. So what were the, the sort of like larger scale, um, conclusions? Yeah. Um, so, I think that one one thing that I I just can't stop thinking about is like Canada is so fucking fake and you know you and I uh, we know this we're we're aware of this like this is something we talk about mm -hmm. um, but it was just so brought home in in such an obvious way during this pandemic that federalism only entered the conversation as a justification for why certain actions could not happen right like like it was like. Oh, it's a healthcare. It's 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 provincial. Oh, the federal government can't do anything about healthcare, and it's like they have the emergency act. They can do whatever the fuck they want. No, right? And it's just like why do we have it? Why do we even have a federal government then? Why do we have the emergency act? Why do we have all this power from the feds? Why why do the feds not then hand out rapid tests? Oh, but because rapid tests are healthcare. No, they're not. The the constitution doesn't defy fucking rapid testing as a healthcare measure. Like. What? There's so many so you, just excuses that are made for the system that is, I'm actually like shocked sometimes at like how mm -hmm. 
um, unable people are to just be like, we could do things better. Like people are, are so, and obviously this, this ties into white supremacy and colonialism. Like people are so married to the idea of the system being good that it, it they f- are unable to just be like, Oh wait, yeah, this is, this could be better. This was yeah. not good. Well, yeah. And then, and then you just had like in the, in the analyses of what, what this, like what's happening, Everybody always, I mean, I got the sense, maybe I'm wrong, but I got the sense that everybody, regardless of where they were in Canada, always felt that they were in the most scary location of the pandemic, with the exception of Atlantic Canada. <laughs> Although Vancouver Atlantic- for the first few months, so I'm not going to lie. I remember being in Vancouver and like everything was locked down. We were very scared, but I remember talking to my friends in Toronto and being like, oh, like you guys actually, just like things. Yeah, there's actually there. cases there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I well, moved to Toronto and then everything was fucked. Well, and this is I just like, so there's, there's this, um, like, we're not really talking about the machine of anxiety that is, is been whipped up constantly over the last two years. We yeah. talk about it, it by proxy, right? There's usually other kinds of conversations where the anxiety comes to a head. The, the discussion about teachers and kids in schools is a really good example of that. Um, but the ex- anxiety itself, this anxiety of, oh my God, I'm going to die where it was like never equally spread. There's different kinds of risk. You can always judge the different kinds of risk based on what you know about certain situations. And rather than making sure people understood that this is what close contact looks like. This is what we think, you know, don't sleep near people. That's really high risk. Um, I mean, that became obvious, but that was where the most high risk ended up being. Uh, we just have this generalized fear. Everybody's just like very, very fear, fearful. And, and what I'm very worried about is that it seems like people are hanging on to that fear as some sort of like virtue. Like I'm taking this pandemic seriously because I'm still afraid and you're not yeah. because you're not acting afraid. So this is a tricky thing. And I know we've talked about this in our, in our, you know, sort of like group that we have of like uh, Canadian socialist journalists and, and everything. And, and it, these are the kind of conversations that are important to have, but they're kind of difficult to have outside of these like group chats, and like things, because it's, it's tough. It's tricky. We don't want like, because, and, and this is the problem when from the start, or at least from very close to the start, um, the right-wing narratives have been that people are overreacting, like people, you know, the, and and the, these are strategic things that that people are too, people are fear-mongering and like, oh, the, the media is lying to you, blah, blah, blah. These um, are things that are not untrue in many ways, but they are used uh, for really nefarious purposes by mm-hmm. the right wing. But at the same time, you know, I have friends who I love dearly who... I am like concerned for how much anxiety they still have as somebody who, for example, like doesn't have kids, has three, like is vaccinated, is triple vaccinated. Like I just, I, but still like unable to like go outside or just like live any kind of life. Like I, I worry about their exposure to the media and I don't know how to thread the needle of like, we obviously, uh, need to be careful. And like, there's more people who aren't being careful than are, but at the same time, like, how do we build trust in a media apparatus that has clearly failed everybody from at all yeah. levels? Yeah, it's, it is really hard. And, um, like one of the interesting things of where I'm like just physically located is the anxiety in Quebec has always been lower. The anxiety amongst my friends has always been lower. Um, even when cases were like out of control, people were still like, chill. <laughs> they are still more chill. Um, I remember at the height of um, one of our big lockdowns in Quebec City, which was caused by um, a gym 
it was fucking not cool. Um, that, uh, this kid arrived at my house and was all of a sudden in my house playing with my kids. And I was like, Whoa, Whoa, this is not safe. Like we're locked down. Why is who, what the fuck is this kid doing here? Oh, she's walking by. Now we're friends with their friends from class. And I was like, okay, I got to chill because at the end of the day, this kid's probably not bringing COVID into my home. They might have. Um, but I know that if that had happened in Ontario, my friends in Ontario would be like, what the fuck can you believe with the peril? Oh my God, they don't take this seriously. It's so scary. And, um, and so there's just like a, a, a more generalized feeling of complete, like, like we're, we're good with this. We're going to arrange our own lives and it sucks, but we're, we're, we're okay with this. And when I went home, uh, in, in August, I was talking to people who had just, who had not actually seen anybody like home, at home all. for you is, uh. In in southern Ontario, right yeah. outside of Toronto, people hadn't seen like it, and 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 I, and the way I was talking about the pandemic, like oh here's the good, here's the bad, not the good, like the pandemic's good, but here's things that we can look forward to, or this is what we know, or us sitting here on this patio right now, it's not it's not dangerous. Rather than like you say it online, people are like, yes, it is. It's like it is not. <laughs> say anything I mean, online and people will jump I, all over you. <laughs> yeah. But, but that anxiety was so, I, I couldn't believe it. I was actually really shocked because every single person I visited with in the summer has, it was holding on to this, like with the fear of death, like this. And so, and, and I, yeah, who do you blame on that? I think that you're, you're right to mention the media that, that, that the way journalists are talking about this over and over and over is to keep us in a state of fear, mo- mostly because we have been told that again, if you aren't taking this seriously, you're part of the problem. And the reality is that, and, and people now with Omicron, lots of people have gotten Omicron, like completely not because of anything that they did. Um, you know, by and large, if you get COVID, it's not actually your fault. And so you being afraid of it, or you being completely paralyzed with the anxiety around with it is not going to change anything. Right. Like, and you, we can, that's how anxiety works. Of course, it doesn't matter because you're still, you feel it, it doesn't fucking matter if it's rational or not, but the, but politicians do want us feeling like, our internal uh, fear about all of this is our expression of how serious we're taking this. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a complete misdirection because, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm really hoping I can explore and we'll see if anyone fucking takes this up. I'm, I've been pitching. I've already had one rejection is um, the reality that uh, the majority of people in Canada, according to the public health agency of Canada, I mean, this is before Omicron. So maybe things have changed since, but I doubt it. Um, they lived in apartment buildings. And that was the one, like, and then there's other ways to see the kinds of people that got COVID. And so when we're looking at like living situations, like apartment buildings and shared air and forced air from other rooms. And now all of a sudden we have this, this um, variant that is really easy to catch. And all these people being like, I haven't left my apartment. How did I get COVID? And it's like, where's the conversation about apartment buildings? Where's the conversation about the things that people literally have no control over at all. And they're just sitting ducks waiting to get this. And instead you've been having anxiety about going to the grocery store. Right. And it's just like, right. It's such a misdirection and it's, and it's really, really, really damaging. Yeah. And it's, and it serves a purpose too, because once again, talking about this sort of like neoliberal bootstrap mindset, um, under capitalism, we need to believe that everything is our fault because, uh, if we, believed that it was a systemic problem or that, that we, you know, need to expect more, um, of, of systemic solutions than like, Oh, what would that do? People would all of a sudden be unionizing and, and fighting back. But when we are blaming ourselves and each other, um, then we are, we're, we're keeping the blame, um, centered around like this, this low level instead of, instead of up top where it needs to be. Um, and so, yeah, this, this anxiety definitely serves a, a social purpose, but it's, um, and it's, and it's, it's difficult because like there's, there's no right and wrong. Like, I don't want to be 
um, implying that anybody who is having this anxiety uh, is like that it's not based in like also uh, an objective reality that you have that you have experienced because like yes we have seen we have watched body bags uh like leaving hospitals and being piled up like we like this this pandemic has traumatized everybody and it's it's the the deaths are real and they're very scary but um it's yeah the, the finding finding that balance of like how afraid should we be like how functional is this this fear and anxiety how much is it keeping me safe um mm -hmm. we've just been left on our own to just like figure that out like just well better keep yourself safe like if you don't wear a mask if you get covid it's your own fault and that that serves that serves a purpose yeah well and i know people that you know got omicron during the holidays um and then this study came out saying like oh there's gonna be a spike in juvenile diabetes and now like all my friends are like freaking out that they're guilty to give their kids diabetes and it's just like whoa <laughs> Like yeah. it, it really is not your fault. Like, and, 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 um, I think that that's like the most important message from like, we have to take action. We have to hold people to account. We have to find ways to organize around the state. That's totally clear. We cannot rely on the state to save us for this stuff. Um, but, uh, we also have to not allow ourselves to get too far into the, oh my God, like I've damaged my child's future because I let them get sick. And, and partly for me, I mean, my own, my own kind of personal experiences, I've, I've got a child who's very medically fragile and I've spent tons of time in hospital. And when you spend tons of time in hospital, things become like, kind of like, you know, you have your own like layers of, of, of trauma and understanding like these really scary hospital situations where you don't know if your child's going to die. Um, and so I'm kind of like a little bit more cavalier about all this being like, it's fine. It's fine. Do you know, do you know the stages between healthy and death? I mean, you got time, <laughs> but I recognize that not everyone has that experience. Mm -hmm. Um, actually, yeah. So this, this, I think I have one more question then, then we're going to, well, we could talk about the good news, yeah. um, before I let you go. But, um, and this is, this is just personally motivated, but I feel like it's going to help other people too, because as parents, we are constantly trying to figure out right now, especially now that like, as if you're like an adult, who's not like severely immunocompromised and you're vaccinated, like you're, you're, you're fairly safe from COVID. I don't know about long COVID, that kind of scares the shit out of me. But once again, I feel like I can't trust my own fear instincts because if you spend enough time on Twitter, everything will scare you and you lose yeah. sight of like what is actually worth being afraid of. So um, I guess this is a two-part question. One, like how bad is long COVID if you're triple vaxxed uh, as far as we know? And then also the, the the kids thing, like obviously we don't want kids to get COVID. We don't know like the long-term impacts if there's a lot that we don't know. But generally speaking, um, you know, how much of a bubble should we be keeping our kids in? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So on the question of long COVID, um, like there's just so many unknowns. And I think that the most important thing about long COVID is that there are a lot of people who have uh, chronic symptoms and have had chronic symptoms now for two years. Cause you know, a lot of the people who talk about long COVID had it in the first or the second waves. Um, I mean, hence long, cause if you've just had COVID, I mean, it's not like it's not yet there. It's not long yet. Um, and a lot of them are, are, are demanding, um, access to the healthcare system, right? Obviously. So like clinics to be set up and this kind of thing. I think it's really uh, helpful to think about what can be done about long COVID less than being afraid of long COVID because mm -hmm. the symptoms of long COVID seem very individual. Like people have, like there's some generalized like brain fog and being really tired, but then there's like in this person, they lost their hair and this person it's, you know, there you can, you, you can be like afraid of encephalitis if you find out about encephalitis and it's just like enters your brain and you're like, I don't want that. Right. So there's, there's a, and, and if it, you know, 
that is actually one of the ways that long COVID is manifesting itself in some people. So from the individual perspective, being afraid of it, um, I'd say like, there's no reason to be afraid of it in, in any way that you're not constantly afraid of every other single thing that could totally derail your life. Right. And so some people are always afraid of everything and fair enough. Um, but I guess, it, yeah, there's, just, there's a larger fear of the unknown with this, but then there's also that sort of like, well, it's the pandemic still ongoing. And so like, how much do I, that's so, so much, how much should I be afraid of that? But like, where is the line where like the, the mitigation and like prevention steps yeah. become not worth it? You know, like, how much yeah. should I lock down? How much, should, and I'm not saying that you have answers to the, the, these questions, but like how much of our lives should we like, is, is more pragmatic to sacrifice to not get this thing? Am I going to regret, you know, yeah. that dinner party? It, yeah. Well, and this is, everyone has to make those kinds of calls because like, first of all, like we don't know what Omicron's going to do for long COVID. We're not, we don't have enough time. People are triple vaxxed or double vaxxed. And we just literally don't know what it's going to look like. I certainly uh, have friends and have read accounts from people who got COVID in the first wave and then have had long COVID since. And, um, you know, if the, if the variants are different enough, it is possible that long COVID is just going to look totally different when it comes to those variants. And, you know, I just did a, 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 a profile on someone who lives in long-term care and has just experienced really horrible situations in long-term care um, and is 87 and also has post-polio symptoms, right? So it's kind of like, you know, people live long and well with chronic illness. And so mm -hmm. again, orienting ourselves towards access and specialized clinics and research funding and, mm -hmm. and research funding is a huge one. That's the, that's the huge. other thing. It's a drum that everybody should be banging at all times. Yeah. And I really want people who are listening to this, um, to know that like, this is something that you can do is just, um, being, like just constantly not giving in to the narratives that convince us that th there's not enough money. The money is there. It's going into the wrong pockets. It's going yep. to the pockets of people who hoard it at the top and they don't need it. And we could use all that money. Um, we could, we could flood the research and healthcare system with money if we chose to as a society, obviously there are barriers in the way, but like the, the fundamental shift that we need in terms of like reorganizing our society away from profit and towards human well-being like we could do that we could yep. absolutely do it yeah and so i mean like I, the way that i look at this is it's like i don't want covid i haven't had covid i don't want to get covid i'm not interested in getting covid um i uh, i i'm you know at this point i'm not hanging out with anybody i don't need to see anybody enough to be like ah, if i got covid it'd not be the end of the world having said that i went home for the holidays and so i did take a risk and the risk was because I thought it was mitigated. I, I knew all the contacts of my parents. I knew our contacts. I had rapid tests uh, because they were given to us in schools. And um, and we just made sure that we didn't go anywhere. And I was also like, okay, if we all get COVID, that will blow. But I'm prepared for that because my kids haven't seen their grandparents in two years, all this stuff, right? It was like important. Mm -hmm. um, and so people just need to make those, those kinds of um, considerations on themselves. And I think a lot about like, I, I had a, a really, really bad uh, flu plus it, like, I mean, it, it put my son into intensive care. I was hospitalized. And then I had a, a heart inflammation because of another, um, kid sickness that is no big deal in kids, but it has a bigger deal in parents, which is called the fifth illness or the slapped cheek uh, disease or whatever the hell you want to call it. It's so ridiculous. Um, I mean, in, in kids, it looks like if like your kids got measles and you're like, Oh my God. And they're like, Oh, it's nothing. It's just the fifth illness. And you're like, what the fuck? But in, in adults, it actually does kind of fuck you up. And so I was like pretty sick and like fainting and feeling like I couldn't do anything for six months. That sucked. It sucked. Did I still 
watch my friend's kid who then actually sneezed her pneumonia onto my meal while I was eating it. And that's literally how I got sick. Yes, I still did that. And so again, like this is, these are the kinds of the trade-offs of living in society. And I have to tell myself that my, my son would get sick every week he was in daycare. So he'd get sick, like symptoms developed, got very sick. And we were hospitalized every fucking week for a period of like, well, that was the year that was the, that was the payment for him being in society. And we just knew we operated within the limits and we operated within what was safe enough. And, and we adjusted ourselves. So that's, that's all I can say for, for long COVID. And then listen to folks with long COVID and help them out. Don't worry so much about yourselves. And then don't want to get COVID. Try not to get COVID. But again, if you're in an apartment building, you can't fucking stop it. So then why are you even worrying about it? Because it's going to come and get you anyway, right? Um, <laughs> the second yeah. question you asked about children. Kids, yeah. Yeah. So I think with kids, I, I, I think that in an attempt to make people take children seriously, because it is very obvious that kids do not get as sick with COVID. That is obvious. In an attempt to get people to take it seriously, I think that they are overblowing how dangerous it is for children because the message is long COVID. We don't know. We don't know. And it's like, okay, yeah, but I mean, this isn't polio, right? This isn't an illness that's murdering children like out of nowhere. We are so lucky that this is a pandemic that has not targeted children in that way. I mean, it's not lucky otherwise. At at the very least, how many kids like, or how common long COVID is in kids that had it a year ago? Like, I feel like we should have, oh, (laughs) um, yeah. Like I feel, I feel like there should be like, even if we don't have evidence for long, long COVID in Omicron in kids, but we should have it for like the original, you know, it's but nothing's being tracked very well. So so evidence is really difficult because what what does it look like? Like there was an article of one little girl who um, her long COVID was losing all her hair. Right. And it's like that's not something I've seen like as a common. All these kids are losing all their hair. Her mother died from COVID from uh, from having a, a heart attack. So maybe there was a genetic thing between the two of them and the daughter's reacting in the same serious way that the mother's reacting. I don't know. Can't trauma also cause hair loss? Yeah. Well, I know there was a, there was a, like they, they were tying it to her um, immune system response. Although of course that, that does happen. Um, and so, but I haven't seen any major studies to say, this is what happens in children. What we do know is that it, it can cause Kawasaki's disease in very rare cases, but in enough cases, you'll actually see that again, not deadly. You don't want it. (laughs) You don't want your kid to be hospitalized, but it is not going to necessarily kill them. Um, it causes myocarditis, the, the heart inflammation again, not deadly. You don't want your kid to get it anyway, but like, you know, putting this thing to perspective, and when I was doing like the, the balance sheet between age of like how many people over 80 versus how many people under 20 died, I mean, it's just, this is an, this is a, an illness that has just ravaged disabled people and it's used to the, to older disabled people. And, um, and I think that we need to keep that in perspective because children are not, sorry, everybody, children are not more special than 80 year olds. <laughs> Right. And, um, and, and continuously making this about, well, the children are, are going to be harmed. They're going to die. The, the data is showing that they are not, they do not experience the same currently severe outcomes as adults. Mm-hmm. They are vectors. They could infect other people. We don't know what the long-term situation will be, but we don't know what the long-term situation of any of this on us, on us will be. So I think the parents, uh, I mean, I feel like parents should be more worried about their kids bringing it home to them than their kids getting it. Um, and, um, but, but it's all, it's all kind of anyone's guess, except again, the number of deaths is, is just, 
a, fr- a tiny fraction of how many people have died um, who are o- over 80. We just, that's, that's obvious. And we know that. Yeah. Um, and that isn't to say that kids don't need to be protected. We don't need to increase air quality and all this kind of stuff at school, but untying the true risk from the aspirational improvements that we want to society, I think is really important because it isn't because children die that we want to ha- them to have good air quality, right? Like we want them to have good air quality. Like, yeah, we don't want them yeah. to die, but, we, but if we care <laughs> about true, children's we, death, we have to have, have a better baseline than, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mean, I won't get into that. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you uh, so much for being here. I, I especially want to thank you particularly Nora for, um, just, I, I mean, obviously you wrote the book on this. This is, this is what you're doing, but like just being willing to have to talk about COVID all the time. Like, oh, it's, it's so weird. Like, that sucks. Like, um, but you know, your, your work is really important. Uh, and it's, it's really, it's, it's great that you're, uh, willing to do this. Um, so just before we go now to anybody who's listening to and or watching this, I think it's important. I'm about to ask Nora, about the good news. However, do not let it wrap around you like a nice warm blanket and then go to sleep in terms of uh, action. You know, like there are still things we can do. You don't want to lie awake at night uh, feeling anxious, but you don't want to just be like, oh, well, there's some good news. Okay. It's, it's all fine. So, but that being said, what are, what are some of the good things? Because we do need to learn from those because yeah. No, it's, it's so true. Um, I think that, you know, we do need to take stock of the fact that um, that Omicron's not as serious. I think that that is good news. Um, I certainly know of a ton of people now who have had COVID, and I'm not sitting there worried that they're going to die. Whereas, mm-hmm. like in the first in the first waves, if I if I found out a friend had COVID, I'd be checking in all the time and looking at their social media and be like, "Oh, good, they posted. Oh my God, oh they're not in the hospital. Yeah. Oh, that's so good, right? Yeah, it was and, real. Yeah." It, it, it was and is, I mean, Delta is still circulating, yeah. right? And, and and we don't actually know what the mix between Omicron and Delta illnesses are in hospital. And that is something that I'm very curious about because we know Delta is much more severe in terms of its of its outcomes and Omicron is less, right? Mm-hmm. It's, of course, it's transmitted faster. This is why the hospital crisis is happening. But I personally think that that is um, encouraging news. And then you can look at what's happening in South Africa. And it looks like there's a, a window of 33 days where Omicron surges and then starts to, to drop. Um, of course, we don't know what comes after that, but that is good. That gives us a bit of a window to look at, um, Mm -hmm. amid all of the really terrible news. Um, I think that, you know, there's some, it's hard to know how this is going to happen because nothing, nothing happens just because it happens. It happens because people organize, but, I, I, I find that there's just this, I'm sure, I'm sure you hear the same thing. There's just seems to be this incredibly rich political awakening that's happening among so many people who, yes. I mean, d- shouldn't have taken a pandemic, <laughs> but it did, which is fine. And, um, and people seem so much less willing to buy the official line. Like you yes. can now say that Doug Ford wants you to die. And rather than being like, whoa, that's really harsh. It's like, yeah, he for sure wants us to die. Right. <laughs> like there, there's a, a new, I find that there's just new horizons of political discussions that have been opened yeah, up. Absolutely. And that's, yeah, that's a really big thing. And I, you know, as an activist myself, I have noticed a palpable difference in the way that even that, that, that people um, are willing to engage with stuff that I have been banging my head against the wall about for years. All of a sudden in the last year, people are like, yeah, sure. Let's legalize drugs, I guess. Yeah, sure. 
but what, whatever you say, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Like people have, you know, for better, or for worse, they're the, the loss of faith in this system. Um, while obviously having some really negative and dangerous consequences, such as like anti-vaxxers and, you know, just like the, the various sort of like the right wing aspects of these things, um, in terms of like the other side of that, just people being like, man, everything's pretty fucked. Like, I guess things aren't as good as I thought they were. Maybe I was wrong about this. Maybe we should abolish the police. Like maybe yeah. borders are bad. Like maybe, you know, and, and there's, there's a willingness to engage. And also, you know, in large part because of, um, the activists who, who, uh, capitalized on this, the, on these changes and, and, uh, and who, who fought for the things that, that needed to be fought for and still do, um, people realizing that they, they have some agency of power in the situation, like white people realizing, oh, oh goodness, I need to do something about mm-hmm. anti-blackness. Like I like, and and obviously that there is dangers to this. There's, you know, this sort of like liberal, um, once again, like the sort of like personal responsibility stuff can make people really myopic and focus too much on like them and their behavior rather than on like externalizing and, and figuring out these, um, the actual solutions other than just like oh, I'm going to be like, I'm going to stop using stigmatizing language. It's like, no, show up to city hall meetings. Like yeah. there are things you can do, but yeah, it's true. That's a, that's a really good one. Um, just shaking people out of this. And I think that, you know, I, once again, a uh, list of books I need to read is fucking long, but mm. um, Naomi Klein talks about this, like in her work on like the shock doctrine that like the right has used natural dis- natural and like, you know, um, social political disasters for years to consolidate mm-hmm. control. That's what they've done. They've done it during this pandemic. They've done it during every disaster ever ha- that's ever happened. And the left can do that too. Like yeah. it, it shakeups big kinds of change. Like that should be when we're mobilizing because it's when people are the most open to like, well, fuck, I guess things have to change. We're like, yes. Okay. Yeah. Now. So let me talk to you about police evolution. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, and, you know, it's like, think of just how many uh, times we've heard, um, like the aging population and the healthcare crisis and it's looming and all the shit. And it's like, oh, it's now, this is what it looks like, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I, 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 it's horrible. I hate it. I'm sure everybody hates it, but we're witnessing it. And so it is very um, amazing to me to see something that we have been warning for decades to me personally, two decades, but three decades uh, come to pass and say, what the fuck did you think was going to happen? What the fuck did you think was going to happen when you created a healthcare system that was at 120 capacity during a regular flu season? Fuck mm-hmm. off, you know? And so all of a sudden, these discussions, they're completely untethered from the theoretical, the, the theoretical that's based in, we know this is going to happen, like it will suck and we're there. And, and so um, I, I wish we didn't have to be here at all. I don't think that it should take getting to a situation like this to be able to have these kinds of conversations. I don't think that that's a progressive way to look at this. However, we are here and it opens up a lot of different kinds of conversations that were um, either too theoretical, too unclear, too rooted. And I'm not sure like exactly how to imagine the future. Uh, We will be Impact, like the, the the transformation of Canada, the transformation of us individually, the transformation of our relationship to community in the social media age. I mean, that's the other thing that I think is just so amazing about this pandemic is it has just shown every single person 
that that the lies they've been fed by by tech companies are just that they're lies that we actually need physical presence with other people we need people in our lives and and whether that looks like mutual aid or whether that looks like you're just hanging out with people and your friends like that's all good and the second that this is over um we will be able to actually be together and it's going to feel really amazing right like just I, I have a meeting tonight and it's with people I've organized with now for five years and for two, like the last year and a half, two years, it's been all online. And it's just like the, the next time we'll be able to meet together. It won't be like, oh, I hate this. I hate these people. I hate meeting so much. It'll be like, fuck yeah, we're in the same room together. This is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, Not taking for granted those basics of like what make us human and, and give yeah. us fulfillment because it's not fucking shopping and, you know, it, like consuming and, and just like the things that, uh, we've been trained from birth to like rely on to give us fulfillment. Don't actually do that. It's literally just like eating food with other people. It's, and I mean, yeah, like, it's so basic. It's anthropologists amazing. have been saying this for years. And I just want to say, because like, we've like <laughs> literally study like humans and human nature and human fulfillment and like societal flourishing. And it's like, oh yeah, we literally like, like it actually not even just being physically around people, but the act of sharing food and drink. Um, because six feet away is fine, but like the, the physical act of like creating food for each other and like serve it, like it's, it, that's yeah. Anyways, it's awesome. That's awesome. And it's gonna, and this is the other thing too, is it's like, don't listen to anyone like that's saying, oh, the pandemic's never going to go away. We'll have COVID forever. It, it will mutate into something that's livable. Right. Or it'll pull a stars and just fucking peace out. And all the scientists will be like, what the fuck? Uh, very, very slim Some chance of that happening. Stars. stars just kind of disappeared. Yeah, if you can <laughs> believe it. Um, and because it just kind of disappeared, that's why all the research that had been kickstarted by that pandemic, where it was kind of like shelved and put in a freezer because they're like, good news. Um, and then MERS came up, the Middle East respiratory uh, virus, um, and, and which was a little bit different, and, but then that didn't go into full-blown pandemic. And then there's been like other swine flu and bird flu and all this kind of shit. But um, but yeah, no, SARS, SARS didn't just mutate into like a cold. SARS stopped happening. Um, so again, the, the trajectory of COVID is not the same as SARS, right? SARS started off much more dangerous. Many more people that got SARS died and it was harder to get um, as in COVID has been easier to get. That's kind of the trade-off where I guess, you know, it's harder to get, but it's way more deadly. Um, but, uh, but you know, I mean, it's, that's probably not gonna happen, but it, the pandemic will end. There's no human fucking society that has had a pandemic for the fucking rest of humanity because we know that we know that. Yeah. <laughs> and so people need to keep that in mind and not get too down on all of those future unknowns because you can throw yourself into a ditch with nonstop thinking about those future unknowns. We have mm -hmm. to focus on the action we can take now um and and that there's no time to waste right like you know don't don't waste your time with the fucking ndp actually get involved with something that's doing good work and um you know and you'll have the energy to do it because we've all been like fucking inside the last two years <laughs> yeah that's right well thank you so much nora for for coming on um and uh can you say the title of the book again it's spin doctors spin doctors how media and politicians misdiagnosed the covid19 pandemic Yes. Um, so everybody should get that book. Uh, Nora does incredible work. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter. Um, do not antagonize her because she will come for you and she will most likely be right. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, so thanks so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, always. <laughs>
Music was created by the artist Pusher. You can find him on Spotify and also on TikTok where he makes really fun anti-capitalist songs. The microphone I'm using was given to me by Mark Edwards of Ultraviolet Podcast. Check out his show and links to all these uh, people's fine projects are in the show description. Thank you so much to you all for listening and for helping with comments and engagement on social media. I know that most people don't have the means to support many leftist creators, so sharing content is genuinely helpful. I'm on Twitter, TikTok, Twitch, and YouTube as Hillary Agro, Hillary with one L. I want to rebrand as Rave Mom, but I also feel like that's kind of like appropriating a term that shouldn't be taken by one person. But it's the only thing I can think of that really speaks to me. Like, I'm a Rave Mom. That's who I am at my heart. Speaking of being a mom, if you do have the means to support my work, please become a patron or just buy my baby some diapers for my Amazon baby registry. Yes, I know, fuck Bezos, but you know, we live in a society, etc. Thank you to those who support me already. You are incredibly smart. You're a dynamo in bed. Flowers sprout from the ground where you walk. Just lovely, lovely people. Every one of my Patreon supporters. Be well, keep up the fight, rest, and take care of yourself and your comrades. Remember that you can't help others if you're burned out. So treat yourself the way that you treat your loved ones. I love you all. See you next time.